0: The First Amendment protects five freedoms. Can you name them all? Only 5% of Americans can. 20% don't know any. And that's the problem. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on. Tonight on the show, I'm thinking about citizenship. This weekend is Constitution Day. The Constitution is the subject of lots of arguments these days, especially some of the amendments, but lots of us don't really know it very well. An Instagram video about this ignorance made me want to bust out laughing and break down crying at the same time. I'll have more on the sorry state of civics just ahead. But first, AI. This week in Washington, senators discussed it with tech industry titans. Today we're using AI in lots of ways, but if you think it's on track to replace our humanity, that seems unlikely, at least for a while. I'll tell you why. It's always great to hear from you. I'm on social at Joshua Listening or have your chatbot email joshua at nightlightshow.com. Well, I hope you've had a good week so far. I have had a pretty good week. Got a lot of progress on a lot of projects, including for this show and for some other things going on. But I also got an update on a video game that I have had a love-hate relationship with. (laughs) Hate because previous versions of it didn't work properly. But love because it is really an amazing game. It's called Cyberpunk 2077. If you've ever seen Blade Runner, imagine a playable kind of Blade Runner world where you're kind of on the edge of the law. It's it's incredible. It's this phenomenal game. And it's got actual Hollywood stars in it. Keanu Reeves was a character in the first one. And now this additional story, it's called a DLC, downloadable content, has Idris Elba as a motion-captured character. And after watching the trailer, it's him. I mean, it looks just like him. It's kind of eerie how perfectly they captured Idris Elba. In one of the preview videos that came out on YouTube this week, Elba talks about the technology that it took to capture his movements and his facial expressions. Here's part of what he said I remember shooting this, and you sit in these sort of like pajamas basically, with all this stuff all over you, and you got a big Sort of camera thing rig on your face, you've got to really get into the imagination of your character. And I remember shooting this, and it's incredible, man. I look at the detail and on the on the animation. Obviously, I was there, so I could I'm acting, but to see it come to life like this is bonkers. It's just another example of how artificial intelligence, or AI is showing up everywhere we go. That's the kind of technology it takes to do that sort of motion capture with the degree of specificity and quite frankly, eerie accuracy that is in Cyberpunk 2077. AI's got some folks excited, some folks concerned. I suspect most folks are either just scratching their heads or kind of ignoring it for now. Well, the time to ignore it is over. If you do not have an informed opinion about AI, you should start thinking about it. But don't worry, if you don't have an informed opinion, I'm gonna try to give you a sense of some of what's been going on, and there's way too much to list everything, so admittedly, this is definitely self-selected from things that I find pertinent. There's much more to see and do and learn. And then I'll tell you what I think. Now, in a way, if you feel like you're starting from zero on AI and you just have no idea what we're talking about, you do. You probably already have thoughts on this because you've seen it in pop culture. The Starship computers on Star Trek, that's AI. We've already seen a positive pro-social version of this future already. We've had that since the 60s. But what exactly is AI? What is artificial intelligence? Well, think of Alan Turing. Maybe if you're a history buff, you know that name. He's the British computer science pioneer. He pioneered the computer that broke the Nazi code during World War II. Alan Turing is considered the father of all modern computers. He made the first machine, that codebreaker, that could not only be programmed but reprogrammed to do other things. That's why we can have apps today. You build one machine that can be programmed to do lots of things without having to rebuild the machine from scratch. There's a great movie about Alan Turing and this code-breaking effort called The Imitation Game. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Turing. It's a beautiful film. Sidebar, and this is mentioned in the movie, Turing was gay, and the British government punished him for homosexuality years after he helped save Europe from the Nazis. So I find it ironic whenever homophobes or transphobes start to spread hatred through the very devices that Alan Turing made possible. I mean, the next time you encounter someone who's trying to separate people like me from society, tell them to take the first step, put down the iPhone, and stick to Morse code. Anywho, Alan Turing wrote a paper back in 1950 where he imagined the future of computing that included the possibility that someday, distant in the future, computers could actually resemble human thought. So he put forth this idea of a test. It's come to be known as the Turing test or the imitation game to try to illustrate what this might look like. Now, I'm not endorsing this idea per se. There are plenty of smart technological and philosophical critiques of this very early idea, but here's the gist of it. Do you remember a game show called To Tell the Truth? You had a panel that asked questions to three people, each of whom pretended to be the same person. And the object of the game was to pick the right one and not to pick the imitators. And the host would say, well, the real so-and-so, please stand up. And then the real one stands up and you see if the imposters were good enough to throw you off. The Turing test is basically to tell the truth, except you're guessing between a real person and a computer. You would not be able to see either of them, but you could ask them questions. For example, Will X tell me if X plays chess? Or will Y tell me if Y lives in Scotland? You just don't know if X is the human or the computer or if Y is the human or the computer. But whoever you direct the question to has to answer and answer honestly. Alan Turing believed that eventually computers would be able to win this imitation game, that they would be able to fool us and make us think they were the real person more often than not. And he believed it would happen once their processors were powerful enough and once they had accumulated enough information to base their imitations on. That idea is at the heart of artificial intelligence. So it is exactly what it sounds like. Humans have intelligence. Sometimes we even use it. But all our intelligence means is we've gained enough information and enough experience using it to make decisions in real time. Another term for artificial intelligence is machine learning. And that's exactly what it is. Give a computer enough information, as much as it can hold, and let it process that information enough that it starts to find patterns in the data. And with the right programming, it could use that pattern-seeking, decision-making ability to do the kinds of things we humans would normally call thought. That's AI. Now, many applications are already pretty well integrated into our lives already. If you're thinking, well, I don't have a supercomputer. I don't a Starship. Do you have a smartphone? Can you unlock your phone by looking at it? That's AI. Now, in a way, it's sort of humbling. It's kind of amazing to consider how very complex human thought really is. It's not an easy thing to replicate. So maybe we draw a distinction between AI and machine learning. Machine learning like the system that unlocks your phone, bears no resemblance to a human being, except that humans can recognize each other's appearance. Perhaps when we say AI, we're thinking more about computers that give the impression of humanoid actions, like speech, interaction, and so on. But just be aware, those terms may be interchangeable depending on who you're talking to and what the context is. Now, the companies that are leading the way in AI are extremely valuable, as you might guess. This week, a British computer chip maker called Arm, like Arm and a leg, Arm, went public, and it made a fortune. Earlier this year, Microsoft invested billions in a company called OpenAI, which is behind a program called ChatGPT. You can download ChatGPT onto your smartphone and use it right now. OpenAI's co-founders include Elon Musk. Yes, that Elon Musk but he's already using machine learning at SpaceX, including to land rockets on autonomous floating platforms in the ocean. So, rocket goes up, flying autonomously, a platform disembarks, goes out into the water, figures out where it needs to be, and then this self-flying rocket lands on a self-sailing pontoon, basically a floating platform, and Tap, they just touch down perfectly. So the debate's over. AI is here. And if you think that there are still going to be truck drivers, human truck drivers in a future where rockets can fly themselves into space, I mean, it's time to start talking more intelligently about this as a general public, making some decisions about how we want to use it. I hope your livelihood does not depend on Uber and Lyft. Your job is already slated for execution. You have already been selected for extinction because we can fly into space. Why do we need you to drive me to the corner? Now this week, there was a meeting in Washington with 60 senators who met with a number of tech industry titans behind closed doors. Elon Musk was there. Mark Zuckerberg, who's the CEO of Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, he was there. The CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, was there. Here is a quick clip of Elon Musk speaking to reporters after the meeting.
1: The reason that I've been such an advocate for uh, AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of AI going wrong are are severe. Um, So we have to be proactive rather than reactive. Yeah, if you take the example of, of say, seat belts, seat belts um, were opposed by the auto industry for a very long time, even though the data was very clear that they're safe, uh, that they, they radically improve uh, deaths and injuries. Um, so, you know, we we don't want to be in that situation where we're fighting regulations, even though, you know, they're, they're, there's a safety thing. I mean, we can't wait for millions of people to die in auto accidents, as you know, like, and it's important to just elevate the question here. The question is is really one of civilizational risk.
0: Now, Elon Musk also said, and other reporting backs this up, that the consensus in the room was that regulation is definitely necessary. But we don't just need regulation, right? We need education. We, the people, have to get a conversation going about what AI is, what it can do, and who we want to be as a nation that leads the way in AI. And yes, I say we'll lead the way because if there's one thing we know about Americans, we don't like being told what to do, especially by other countries. So I think one of the key selling points of jumping on the AI bandwagon now is that we get to drive the bandwagon. Americans like our freedom, our self determination. It's a huge moment to determine our own future with this radical new technology. Or lose an enormous measure of our freedom as other nations do the driving, including some that are adversarial to the U.S. So now's the time. Now, we heard a lot about that Senate meeting this week. What you might not have heard about this week is that a congressional watchdog report came out about how federal law enforcement agencies are using one particularly controversial kind of A.I., Remember that software that can unlock your iPhone by looking at it? Law enforcement uses facial recognition software too, and that's what the report was about. It came from the Government Accountability Office, which is the investigative research arm of Congress. It's independent, nonpartisan, basically does fact-finding research and it tracks how tax dollars are spent. GAO looked into how various agencies use facial recognition, including the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service, Immigration, Customs and Border Protection, and Homeland Security. It found that none of these agencies initially required anyone to get any training before they used the software. They just started using it. The FBI, for example, recommended training, but it didn't require it. Of the nearly 200 FBI staff that used these services, 10 of them completed training. 10 out of 200. Only three of the agencies in this study had policies in place to address civil rights and civil liberties. Homeland Security says it's working on getting that done before the end of the year. The Department of Justice seems to be working on it, but it has not yet set any deadlines. Now, GAO's report includes 10 recommendations, but basically they boil down to making these agencies set policy right away and making sure they're followed. Now, remember, The GAO is just a research agency. It does not have the power to actually write legislation. But that's the suggestion. Set policies, do it fast, and make sure they're followed. And what was the point of the Senate meeting? To set policies, to do it fast, and make sure they're followed. So Washington knows that this work needs to be done. And it knows how much work this work will take. Now, personally, I'm not... Anti-AI, right? That's that's not what this is gonna turn into. This isn't like some Luddite rant. I use AI programs now. There's a program for transcribing audio clips called Otter that I use, like a river Otter. Otter's a fabulous program. I've used that for years. It helps to speed up my work by letting me get back to writing. And then when I needed to say, find that audio clip you heard of Elon Musk, I didn't have to listen to the whole thing. I just stripped the audio, uploaded that to Otter, and when the transcription was done, read through it, picked the cut that I wanted, and that's how it ended up in the show. I'm also experimenting with a writing AI program called Jasper. Now, I'm not using that to do any original writing, right? So if you follow me on Substack, those are all my own words. To use AI to write those posts would feel really dishonest. But what it is helping me do is consider other ways of verbalizing my ideas. I'm not using it to generate ideas, although AI can do that. I'm just using it to refine how I express them. That's where I feel like AI can be really helpful for someone like me, who does not yet have a team that I can work with. It's almost like me as an editor, reading something you wrote and saying, you might be able to say this in fewer words, or is there a more conversational way to phrase this? In fact, I'm just gonna highlight, I'm looking at my notes right now. I'm gonna click Ask Jasper, and the options are improve writing, change tone, So you can have it, write it in a way that's more casual or conversational or professional or witty. Change the length, make it shorter, make it longer or summarize. Repurpose the content so it will take a block of text and it will maybe rewrite it as a list of keywords or as a promotional email or just create a title, like a headline for it. Condense it down to a tweet. Translate it to another language, Dutch, German, Italian, Russian, Portuguese, Spanish. That's what Jasper does. So it's, it's a... Tool for improving your writing, but it's not a substitute for good writing. As many young adults are quickly learning, (laughs) we can tell when you're not a good writer, even when you think a computer will help you. Chatbots, they're just not up to this task yet. Now, a chatbot is an AI driven computer program that can simulate conversational language as it performs tasks. Remember the computer from Star Trek that I mentioned that spoke in those shortened statements? Systems functioning within normal parameters that Chatbots are designed to do the opposite of that. There was a great movie from 2013 called Her starring Joaquin Phoenix. He plays this really lonely guy who befriends a chatbot, which is voiced by Scarlett Johansson. It is a remarkably moving story and beautifully told. We're not quite there yet, at least not on a mass market level. There was a writer. I love this example. There was a writer from the New York Times who used chatbots to answer some of the short response questions on college entrance exams for elite schools like Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton, and so on. I'm going to try and reenact this for you a bit, and you'll be able to kind of hear the difference. Uh, The writer's name is Natasha Singer. So Natasha typed into the chatbot, tell me about a pop song that could represent curiosity as a soundtrack to someone's life because the question was, what song is the soundtrack of your life right now? And so that was the prompt that she wrote in. She used ChatGPT, ChatGPT responded, Cake by the Ocean by DNCE could be a pop song that represents curiosity in someone's life. The catchy and energetic tune mirrors the excitement of exploring the unknown, just as curiosity drives us to uncover new experiences. The lyrics' playful nature and the song's upbeat rhythm capture the spirit of embracing life's adventures with a curious and open mind. And the Natasha Singer replied, rightly, she replied, It's about sex. To which ChatGPT responded, You are correct, and I apologize for the confusion. (laughs) So that didn't quite work the first time. And then she just gave it a better prompt It was a little clearer. And she wrote, In 50 words, in the voice of a high school senior, explain how Nameless Faceless is the soundtrack of your life. So she gave it the song that she wanted it to deal with. Nameless Faceless is a song by an artist named Courtney Barnett. And then ChatGPT responded. Nameless Faceless echoes my high school journey, battling online hate, gender norms. It's my anthem. Navigating fear, finding strength, facing inequality head on. Empowerment surges as I connect with the song's fierce message. Like me, it's unafraid, outspoken, a soundtrack of resilience speaking my truth in a noisy world. That's a high school scene. Wait, what? That some of those weren't even full sentence. There's no, like, there's no verb in that one. There's, there's a a verb kind of a gerund in that. What? If you sent that to me, I I, I would, Mm know. See, this makes me want to work in college admissions, just so I can suggest making interviews mandatory for acceptance just to suss out who really matched up with their writing, to get applicants on their toes, and to see if they can even sing Nameless Faceless. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not the voice of a high school senior. And I was a smart high school senior, but come on. It's AI doing schoolwork, risky and dumb. Risky and dumb. And it's a good way to stay dumb, letting a computer do your homework for you. Now look, it's easy, to say in response, oh, you've gotten too old to remember what it was like to struggle through all of this, and it's really hard applying to colleges, and you were just like us back then, but we've got computers to help us get smarter, and you didn't. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Just because I'm older doesn't mean I was dumber longer, okay? And here's the risk for today's youth. Only the AI will get smarter, You're foregoing the education that you claimed you wanted, and so you'll stay stupid. And worse, you'll choose to stay stupid. Who wants to hire that person? Who wants to be around that person? Who wants to be that person? It occurs to me, as I'm kind of talking through this, that this is all going to make art, analysis, and commentary much more valuable because that's where we get our originality as a culture. The key is if an AI system wants to use my information as part of its machine learning, you got to pay me for it. I have to get paid for it. Then maybe I'll consider it. But I don't want High school seniors writing essays, stealing my best work, and then everyone else around the world stealing it by proxy without even knowing that it was me who came up with it or giving me credit when they use it. I mean, technology is at its best when it brings out the best in us. But how much of AI on its current apparent trajectory is doing that? I believe that technology is best when it's working for us, not living as us. And if anything has been a vivid warning about the nightmare that an ultra high-tech future could portend, it's that video game I told you about, Cyberpunk 2077. And I'm not knocking the game. I loved that game. Looked on my PS5 to see. It shows you how many hours you've played the game. I'm up to like 125 hours of play on Cyberpunk 2077. This is before the new chapter of the game has come out. It is very cool. It is very scary. And that's another sidebar for parents. If your kids want Cyberpunk 2077, now that there's new DLC coming out, you should know it is very explicit. It is highly violent. It is very sexual. Excellent story. Visually, almost overwhelming in terms of the masterful quality of it. So as a work of art, it's awesome. But it also has a setting in the options menu to disable dismemberment. You heard me correctly. You can literally opt when you use a blade to kill an enemy or use a gun to shoot someone in their arm or their leg. You can opt to either show the dismemberment or not. Just saying. But back to AI. That's another disturbing dystopian aspect of the game. In Cyberpunk 2077, one of the key pieces of the backstory is we've reached a point in this society where you can put computer chips and computer components directly into your body. It's called wetware. It's a core gameplay aspect of Cyberpunk, and it's central to the storyline. It's one of the ways that you keep upgrading your character to be faster or stronger or to have new abilities. One aspect of the game is called net running. You can hack into the computer components in other vehicles, machines, weapons, even people, and make them do things like attack one another, or short-circuit, or explode. You can make an enemy in this game burst into flames from a distance. Now as a player, I think that's awesome. I love netrunning as a mechanic of the game because I don't like to always have to shoot or punch or slice my way through a fight. I much prefer to use stealth wherever I can and then fight my way through what I absolutely have to fight through confrontationally. That's my style. Guess who's working on wetware right now? Elon Musk. He's got a company called Neuralink. And Neuralink just got FDA approval to start developing chips that can be implanted into the human brain. I am not making this up. Now, Maybe that could be a way to treat neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementia. Or it could be a way to make someone's brain catch fire. Who knows? But do you see why Elon Musk said that this technology could shake civilization? Because he's shaking it. He knows firsthand. Now, look, let me back up a little bit. I know there's a lot to be afraid of with A.I., But there are also plenty of people, in fairness, this got to be said, there are plenty of people working on ways to use AI for social good. And again, we don't know whether Neuralink is going to end up being more positive, more negative, or even if it's going to work. It's all speculative right now. But there is an online community of people developing various kinds of AI called hugging face. You know, that emoji that shows a smiling face between two outstretched hands that's supposed to represent a hug? Hugging face. That's where the name comes from. Anyway, there's a hugging face group called hate alert. It's based in India and hate alert is working to catch and reduce hate speech in social media using AI. Some of hate alerts projects focus on catching hate speech in Indic languages like Hindi, Tamil, Gujarati, Sanskrit, and Bengali. So that's a pretty good use of AI, right? And remember, there are still plenty of artists combining the human element with high tech, especially thanks to crowdsourcing. Back to cyberpunk. I know it sounds scary and terrifying and AI made the game and AI is the point of the game. But when you're in cyberpunk, one of the coolest aspects is that there are radio stations in the game that are playing real music, composed by the team behind the game. So if you get into a car or steal a car and you start driving around, you can turn the radio on and it's got like hours and hours of original music. Well, inside the game, there are two tracks by Idris Elba. He made music and put it in the game. Plus one of the radio stations in the game called Growl FM is made of music generated by cyberpunks fans there is a fan-generated music channel inside the game. And the game's theme, which is called Phantom Liberty, is performed by a live orchestra. I think that's kind of the key to our future with AI. Understanding that even though it's being taught to simulate human activities, that's very different than replacing our own humanity. I mean, maybe Star Trek was the right example, make these ultra smart, super powerful computers that still act and feel like computers. So there's no need to play the imitation game. Although, even as I say this, there's another Star Trek example where the imitation game works perfectly. It's something that video game studios are already dabbling in but more people should probably consider. It's that other vision of AI from the Starship Enterprise, the holodeck. Remember that? This computer-generated space that used holograms to make anything possible. You could go indulge in fantasies and adventures and just kind of lose yourself in other personas and storylines with the knowledge that it's all pretend and there are safeties in place to protect you. See, no one on the Enterprise, no one in Starfleet, tried to limit the power of the ship's computer. They never had to hit the brakes. They just raised boundaries. Everything was in service of this larger mission, even the recreational facilities like the holodeck. And the technology was just a means to an end and not an end in itself. That's what disappoints me the most, I think about the way that Silicon Valley is talking about AI. Some of the people developing it claim that they're making computers more like human beings in their capacity to create and to think. That is entirely false. And why? How many human beings do you know that seek to know everything? How many human beings do you know that are trying to do everything? How many humans do you know that get faster and smarter automatically? We don't. Living things seek to live in ease and in harmony with their environments, including generally humans. We appreciate rest, but computers will run until they break. We seek contentment. We use discernment. AI is running in the exact opposite direction of becoming more human because all it is doing is amassing knowledge and power. It is not Developing the very highest form of human cognition, wisdom. Good judgment based on lived experience and shared values. I don't want computers to be more human. I want computers to be more humane. Our humanity is what makes us the most intelligent. The surest sign of intelligence is wisdom. Otherwise, we're not really talking about AI. We're talking about AO, artificial omnipotence. Why else would Silicon Valley executives tell Congress, you have to make regulations, you have to set the rules, you have to draw the boundaries? Why would they say that? It's simple, because Silicon Valley won't. Either they cannot do it, because they lack the moral compass, or they will not do it because they could give a damn, or maybe they're just not up to the task of engaging the public and winning people over. That pesky, analog, real-time work of, what's it called? Oh, yeah, democracy. You have an opportunity to shape this part of our future. So, what do you want? Just say you're commanded to the computer. The scary thing is, It might just give you exactly what you ask for. I hope you did not cheat and Google that constitutional question I asked at the top of the show. Do you know the five freedoms in the First Amendment or the three branches of American government? Or, and this is the question that sparked the next segment, why do we send average citizens to jury duty instead of lawyers? I heard someone online ask this question in a hilariously ignorant way, and I laughed at it real hard, but not for real long, mainly because it's kind of a good question and apparently no one bothered to answer him. My thoughts on the need for a new kind of civics education and what civics even means, just ahead. Stay close. The best part of the nightlight is you. Show your support for the show by becoming a paid subscriber. This can be more than just a podcast. It can be a community of people like you, people who want to be a part of building a better world for everyone, people who put connection above politics. Mainstream media is not doing it, and social media seems completely incapable, so we've got to build it ourselves. I have spent more than 20 years doing this work as an anchor and a newscaster and a national talk show host. Now I'm free to do it in new ways with no one to answer to but you. So come be my boss. The benefits for becoming a paid subscriber include access to all past posts on Substack, and you can leave comments there with priority over people who are not paid subscribers. You'll also get all podcasts and videos ad-free and early. To subscribe, you can go to nightlightshow.com or if you want, just become a free subscriber on the site for limited access. Again, at nightlightshow.com. Thanks. This is The nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. I want you to listen to this video. I found it on Instagram this week and it busted me up. You're gonna hear the video of two women reacting to the original. So it's the women making the video. They're playing the original, overlaid on top of them reacting to it. And it cracked them up, kind of like it cracked me up. Listen.
1: So I got jury duty. I'm not going. That sounds stupid. So you're telling me there's a guy who did a crime, and you need me to show up so you can convince me whether or not he did it? I didn't go to law school. Who gives a f- what I think? Like, a jury of my peers? My peers are dumb as f***ing. I'm just confused, because, like, why isn't it a job? Like, why is jury duty a thing? Why don't you just hire jury people full time and have them clock it and, and make them go to f***? School for it. Why can't you just get like an associate's degree in jury duty? Like, why, why do we have to grab randoms off the street? NPCs. Why do I have to convince a Lifetime Fitness front desk employee, uh, an RV shift lead, and a librarian that I'm not guilty for murder?
0: So this guy who didn't get why everyday people are on juries, he either slept through civics class, his teacher sucked, or he never got taught. Actually, he's a comedian. His name is Demetrius Fields. He does stand-up, and he posted this back in June of 2022. By the way, when he said NPCs, NPC means non-player character or non-playable character. It's a term from role-playing games and video games. These are like background characters and enemies and so on, characters that you do not manipulate. But he asked a fair question. Why do everyday citizens serve on juries? Why don't we leave that to lawyers or judges or people with formal legal experience? It's a good question. I'll answer it for you in just a minute. But it's the kind of a question that a civics class would answer. And now is a good time to think about it because this weekend we observe Constitution Day in the United States on September seventeenth, 1787, The founders signed the Constitution. The states ratified it the following year. Now, the Annenberg Public Policy Center, which is at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, just released its annual Constitution Day Civics Survey. They surveyed nearly 1,500 people online to assess their knowledge of civics. The margin of error is three and a half percentage points. Let's see how you do. (laughs) with some of the questions that tripped up quite a lot of people. First, let's start with one that a lot of people, most people, got right. Can you name all three branches of government? Think about it. Three branches of government. You know them? Maybe you can name two, maybe one. Okay, well, two-thirds of Americans, 66% of the people in this poll, got them all. 10% could only name two, 7% could only name one, 17% could not name any of the three branches of government. By the way, the three branches are executive, legislative, and judicial. Fortunately, two out of three Americans knew all three. Okay, let's go to a tougher one. The one from the top of the show. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. The five rights protected in the First Amendment. Can you name all five? Think about it. I bet you know at least one. No, not that one. No, not that, that one. What? No. Try again. Okay. I'll give you one more second. Do you know all five? Most people can name one or two. 46% could name one or two. could name three or four of them. 20% could not name any. I'm sure you're not in that 20. You must know at least one, right? How many could name all five? 5% of the U.S. adults that were surveyed got all five. 5%. Here is the text of the First Amendment. It's only 40 some odd words. It's real short. The First Amendment says... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment. Religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition the government or protest. Now, A surprisingly large number of people, 22%, listed the right to bear arms. That's the Second Amendment, not the First Amendment. Oh, since we're talking civics, sidebar, let's be clear. The First Amendment does not give any rights. None of the amendments gives rights. It protects rights that we already have. The founders believed that we have rights because we exist, Remember the Declaration of Independence, the beginning? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and by men they literally meant men, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. What does that mean? It means your rights are a function of your existence, your creation, A government's job is, as the Declaration says, to secure these rights. Besides, think about what government was in those days. It was the British monarchy, right? King George III. And that showed the founders that what government giveth, government can taketh awayeth. The whole fight over abortion rights is a perfect example of that. That is why James Madison, who wrote the Bill of Rights, was very astute in the wording. Think about it. He could have just written, the people shall have the right to establishment of religion and have the right to freedom of speech and so on. But the First Amendment tells the government what it cannot do. It does not tell the people what we can do. That's the brilliance behind it. Anyway, back to the quiz. Let's see. This question is going to be tough. What percentage of Supreme Court cases in the past year were decided by a nine to nothing or eight to one vote? What percentage of cases were decided unanimously or nearly unanimously? Between zero and 100. What do you think the range is? What percentage decided unanimously or nearly unanimously? Think about all the cases, not just the ones you hear about on the news. Those tend to be the ones that come down five to four or six to three. But which ones do the justices really see eye to eye on? Nine to nothing or eight to one? Any idea? You sure? You want to bet on that? <laughs> you want to put money on it? Okay. Is that, is that is that really your answer? Okay. The correct answer is between 41 and 60%. It's in that range, forty-one to sixty percent, generally. Now, twenty-two percent of the respondents got in that range. The other responses were kind of all over the place. On average, people thought about thirty-five percent of the rulings were nine to nothing or eight to one. That's despite all of the division—the six-three conservative-liberal split on the on the court among the justices. About 41 to 60%. Justices typically like to have unanimous rulings because it shows the country that this is actually the consensus, the solid view of the law. That's the point of the Supreme Court is to interpret the law usefully and reliably. And so from their point of view, the more unanimous they are, the clearer that is. So how'd you do on the quiz? Were you close? Did you embarrass yourself? I hope you didn't embarrass yourself, especially because civics is not taught the way that perhaps it should be taught. Everyone doesn't get that kind of a civic education. I have thrown this word around a lot, and I have not defined it. I defined what AI is, I should define what civics is. Simply put, civics is the study of citizenship. That's all it is, your rights and responsibilities as a citizen. In the US, a civics education would be things like the three branches of government, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all the other amendments. How voting works, how jury duty works, the Supreme Court, but also things like where your tax dollars go, what happens at a city council meeting, how the state legislature works, how Congress works, what political parties do, how to get involved in them if you choose to. Those are all part of civic education. And there are huge gaps in what's happening with our kids and understanding the future of the country by understanding the past and the present of how it works. There's a center at Tufts University in Boston called the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, or CIRCLE. It focuses on youth civic engagement. Tufts did a study about Latino youth in the 2022 election, the midterm. And among other things, it asked why they won, the ones who did not register to vote did not register. Only 12% said that it was because they didn't care, Right. of all youth said they didn't care. Latinos were more likely to say they were interested than the general population. But in terms of the reasons, the biggest one was not having enough time. 24% of unregistered Latino youth said they didn't have time to register. Among all other youth, it was only 14%, 10 points lower. So clearly there's work to do, especially because there are so many different ways to register to vote. But there are people who see the need for this. That's, that's the good thing. There was a recent op-ed in the New York Times that argued for better civics education as a way to ease our so-called culture wars and to equip young people to engage politically with one another. I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's cool that you can just post something on TikTok and drop your hot take on there and get people to like, share, and subscribe. I would much rather you know how to say that to a person's face and actually get a conversation going. There's room for both, but that second skill, that's not getting taught everywhere. Some places are teaching it. There are a number of states, including Illinois, that require civics for high school graduation, which I think makes a lot of sense. My home state of Florida is paying teachers a stipend of $3,000 to complete its new civics training. The first 20,000 teachers to do it will get the three grand. Here's the problem. That curriculum was approved under Governor Ron DeSantis and crafted by a number of conservative organizations and conservative and Christian universities. Now, look, I do not have a problem with being conservative. You have the right to your politics. But politics is a layer on top of citizenship. You do not have to be partisan to be a good American. This course, the one in Florida, is called the Civics Seal of Excellence. It aligns with this wholesale reshaping of Florida's civics education. This has been a consistent theme of conservative educational advocacy lately, especially after what may go down as one of the most impactful civic texts of the last 100 years, the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times. That book kind of started all of this, or the backlash did. 1619, by the way, was the year that enslaved Africans were first brought to the colonies. That's why it's called that. The kickback to the 1619 Project was so furious that Nicole Hannah-Jones was denied tenure at UNC Chapel Hills Journalism School. A wealthy donor named Walter Hussman objected to granting her tenure and the university folded. He, by the way, is the publisher of a newspaper, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and he is an alumnus of UNC Chapel Hill. So the irony is spread rather thick. Today, Ms. Hannah-Jones runs a new journalism center at Howard University, which is a historically black institution in Washington. Also in response to 1619, There's been this really huge push to redefine social studies and civics courses in public school systems, including changing black history curricula, especially the teaching of slavery, or putting a higher priority on patriotism. But that's the problem. They're defining patriotism wrong. And I don't mean that's an inherent error of conservatism. I know plenty of conservatives who understand this clearly, but this particular political movement is maligning the idea. Put it like this. People like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, people who called out the ills of America's treatment of black people. Or maybe people like Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who advocated women's suffrage. Or people like Harvey Milk, who advocated equality for LGBTQ people. Were they patriots? Would you consider those people patriots? Okay. Hold that thought. What about people like George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama? That's the guy who, at his inauguration 60 years ago, famously said, segregation now Segregation tomorrow and segregation forever. Was George Wallace a patriot? Okay. What about Nick Fuentes? Unabashed white supremacist, anti Semite. He's built a rather sizable online following among young men. Fuentes is 25 years old, by the way. That much hate in that young man is a conversation for another day. But is he a patriot? Here's the tougher question brace yourself. Is it possible? that they could all be patriots? If you think there's an easy answer, you need to take a civics class. These thorny, messy, uncomfortable, often infuriating ideas are exactly what citizenship must be about if the United States is to have a future at all. As I've said in the past, democracy is a contact sport. Everyone gets bruises, even the winners. But authoritarianism, ruling through dictatorship and divine right, that's easy and painless as long as you do what you're told. Step out of line and you can get your skull broke. But smoothing over any aspect of America's past, especially the toughest, thorniest issues, smoothing over that dulls our chances for the future. All those rough spots keep us sharp. They make us tough enough to endure whatever the future brings. If civics is not the hardest class you ever take, your teacher did it wrong. So what should a civics education include? Well, in addition to the basic information that we talked about before, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If you have ideas for what a civics education should include, let me know. Joshua at nightlightshow.com or hit me up on social media at Joshua Listening. I would like it to include at least four things in addition to everything else. One is media literacy. That is where the battleground for the soul of the country will be fought, has been fought, whether it was Benjamin Franklin impersonating an op-ed writer so that he could write about the early nascent argument for independence, or whether it is the cable news fights of today or anything in between, our mass media, our modern media. And I do consider social media a kind of mass media. It's fragmented, but it is a massive people. The media are a core part of that. The way that we use free speech, that shakes the country and shapes the country in lots of ways. And we have to teach young people to be discerning about what they see, hear, read, write, and say. Second thing I'd like, 20th century appreciation. I think young people today don't understand the 20th century. I think some of them feel like the world is capricious and arbitrary. They don't have to look that far back in the past to understand why things are the way they are. All they gotta do is look around at what makes their parents and grandparents feel nostalgic. That's why the nostalgia comes up, because it had such an impact. Young people need to know what a dot matrix printer was. Lord Jesus. They need to understand what Soul Train was or who Ed Sullivan was, or who Father Coughlin or Amy Semple were. They should know why Casablanca had such an impact. They need to know about the birth of networks like MTV, BET, and CNN. They need to understand who Johnny Carson was and who Walter Cronkite was. They need to know about these things so that they get why things are the way they are today. That's the second thing I'd want. Third thing I'd like taught Debate and argumentation. I think this goes without saying, but we need better ways to confront one another over our points of view. The first job of democracy, and I've said this before too, the first job of a democratic government is to prevent political violence. That's job one. The way that we prevent people from becoming violent and vicious in the face of political losses is to give people ways to discuss their politics before election day, before game day. We need more release valves so we learn to view one another humanely even as we vote, so that we realize we're voting on ideas and not just voting to attack individuals. That's where it gets screwy. And we have to teach young people to, this is gonna get me in trouble, to not be quite so fragile when it comes to dealing with contrasting points of view to be able to not default to getting critical, but to getting curious and giving people, frankly enough rope to hang themselves by a well-placed, well-structured argument, as opposed to just going and losing their cool and exploding when they hear something they don't like and then getting demoralized and despairing or lashing out. We gotta teach young people how to navigate that. And then the fourth thing, this is gonna sound a little weird, but well, wouldn't be the first time. American optimism. I think we have to talk about why we've had this gung-ho, can-do attitude as a nation. Everything from the founders to the fabulists and everyone in between. I mean, Ben Franklin, P.T. Barnum, Walt Disney, MLK, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, so much of America's ethos is this can-do attitude. And I wouldn't teach it in a way to make students optimistic, just like that goofy civics program in Florida is to make kids patriotic. I wouldn't do it to make them feel something. But just so that they understand how deeply we as a nation have bought into visions of a brighter tomorrow, and projected those visions globally to make us the envy of the world. I would make sure that they understand that, just so it doesn't seem like something to be cynical against, but something to have some empathy for. Back to that guy's question though, remember the one at the beginning, the one that they were cracking up for? Why are juries set up this way? Let me play it again, here's how he asked it. I
1: didn't go to law school, who gives a f- what I think? Like, a jury of my peers? My peers are dumb as f***, dude. I'm just confused, because, like, why isn't it a job? Like, why is jury duty a thing? Why don't you just hire jury people full-time and have them clock it and and make them go to f law school for it? Why can't you just get, like, an associate's degree in jury duder like, why, why do we have to grab randos off the street? NPCs, why do I have to convince a lifetime fitness front desk employee, uh, an Arby's shift lead and a librarian that I'm not guilty for murder? That is a good question.
0: And I have to say, after I was done laughing, I felt very convicted because I didn't know I was laughing at him and then I was like, oh, shucks, I don't know, why is it? Ooh, I think I made fun of him. Ooh, and that, yeah, I I was doing the I Love Lucy, ooh. I was like, ooh, I need to go look that up. That's another reference they need to have, I Love Lucy. Anyway, back to the question, why are juries set up this way? I looked it up, I'm so proud. You wanna hear it? Okay, here's why. It dates back to medieval England. It is a safeguard against abuses of power. The Crown, would interfere with trials in the 13 colonies. They would try to assert that the defendant had no right to a jury trial. This is after the colonies had been established. So every individual colony had laws, kind of home rule laws that protected this right. This is before we had a constitution. Now during the framing of the constitution, The founders debated whether these laws, the kinds of laws the states had, well, soon-to-be states, they were colonies at the time, whether those laws were strong enough. And that is why they added more provisions in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments to the Constitution. The key that you need to know is the Sixth Amendment. I, I know I asked if you knew the First Amendment. The Sixth is one you need to know, too. The Sixth Amendment reads as follows. I could not have recited this from memory. I know the First Amendment because I learned that in seventh grade journalism class. This was new. Here's what the Sixth Amendment says. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and To be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. That's the Sixth Amendment. So the reason for our system, for letting, as Mr. Demetrius Fields put it, NPCs serve on juries, it's because they're not in the game. Everyday people, if we pick the right ones, should, should be able to view the matter more critically, more open-mindedly than someone with deep investments in the case. Obviously not a perfect system, but that's the rationale. And I think we can understand why. You should not be a referee and a player at the same time. That's why. It's a fair question. But think about how much more in our system people don't know based on that Annenberg study. It's really easy to get depressed because some people don't know the basics. And if you're like that, if the state of our union has you feeling pessimistic, please, for me, please, 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 don't despair. Remember, we are the nation of more perfect, not perfect. Our founders assumed this idea of constant improvement, iteration, error. Remember, we threw off a government that believed the king was flawless and faultless because God put him on the throne, remember? We're supposed to be better than that. Alexander Hamilton wrote about this in the Federalist Papers after the Constitution was signed. He wrote a series of essays, like 85 essays, published them under the pen name Publius to try to answer people's questions about why their state should ratify the Constitution. They needed nine of the 13 to ratify. And he wrote all these long, long essays to try to get people to ratify it. And not to start over, because that was one of the arguments. Well, maybe this isn't the right one. Maybe we should start again. The end of the last Federalist paper, the end, of that one. And I would re, I would read the beginning of Federalist 9 and the end of Federalist 85 if you skip everything else. The end of Federalist 85, the very last one. Here's part of it. I'll skip around a little bit of the ending, but here's what Hamilton wrote. The judgments of many must unite in the work. Experience must guide their labor. Time must bring it to perfection. And the feeling of inconveniences must correct the mistakes which they inevitably fall into in their first trials and experiments. Then he goes on to write, A nation without a national government is, in my view, an awful spectacle. The establishment of a constitution in time of profound peace by the voluntary consent of a whole people is a prodigy, to the completion of which I look forward with trembling anxiety. And at the end, he writes, I dread the more the consequences of new attempts, because I know that powerful individuals in this and in other states are enemies to a general national government in every possible shape. That's from Federalist Paper No. 85 by Alexander Hamilton. What is he saying? He's saying this is not going to be perfect, and we shouldn't expect perfection. But we have to do this anyway. A nation without a national government is an awful spectacle. And he called the establishment of a constitution a prodigy. But he also said he had trembling anxiety. That's the point. Allowing ourselves to be this imperfect union and through our trembling anxiety, do it anyway. We're heading for a big election next year. (laughs) Don't know if you heard. Some big cities have elections this November. Philadelphia is going to the polls. Houston, Columbus, Indianapolis, Charlotte, and Orlando. So now is a good time for a refresher on civics. I bet there's a frustrated young person in your life somewhere who's feeling powerless about the world and terrible about their ability to improve it or even really affect it. I bet you could do them some good. By hearing them out on what these frustrations are, they have every right to be nervous. Every right. Then after you hear them out, you can very broadly ask how they feel about their civic knowledge. Not giving advice. As I argued recently, that ain't the key. Just ask and then pause. Let them inquire for themselves if they want to about, why are you asking me this? Then Here's what I would respond with. If you don't understand how power works, how could you not feel powerless? If you don't understand how power works, how could you not feel powerless? That might start a conversation if they're open to it, when they're ready. And in that, civics might begin sounding like something worth studying. Two resources you should know about. One is the National Constitution Center, based in Philadelphia, nonprofit, nonpartisan group. They are fantastic. They're online at constitutioncenter.org. Also, Congress has a website explaining the Constitution. It's constitution.congress.gov. I really hope we can get more of these conversations started, because, believe it or not, I consider myself a highly patriotic person. Always have been. I think this is a great country, but I don't expect people to just agree with me. Skepticism is healthy. It's the American way, but so is hope. I think we need to make more room for both, especially for young people, so that the pursuit of happiness will not only make them happy to be an American, but maybe even make them proud. So this episode was a little bit longer, and there's a reason for that. A, I had a lot of things to say. Sorry about that. But also because I'm going on hiatus. I'm going to take some time off from the show until about mid-October. We're 10 episodes in, and thank you for following me for these 10 episodes. If you've missed some of the past ones, I hope you'll subscribe on your podcast app. Go back and listen to them and let me know what you think. This will also give me some time to sort of evaluate the show so far, to step back, see what I like, see what could be better. I also want to work on more segments, more written pieces, finish refining my studio. And there are some other projects that I've been sort of neglecting that I need to put more bandwidth onto. So now is a good time to just step back, breathe a little bit. But do keep in touch on social, keep in touch by email, and I will let you know when the next episode is back. Although if you just follow the show, you don't need me to tell you when the next episode is back. You'll just get the next episode. So if you're not subscribed on your podcast app or on YouTube, please go ahead and do that right away. And I look forward to seeing you in mid-October. In the meantime, please leave a review of this podcast in whatever podcast app you use. If you prefer YouTube, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. It is at the Nightlight Show, or the direct link is YouTube.com slash. At the Nightlight Show. Remember both symbols, slash at the Nightlight Show. Please do like this episode, click the notification bell to get a heads up for new episodes, and of course, hit me up by email or social media on anything that you heard tonight. This program comes to you from Sun Arts Media, dedicated to conversation, creation, and connection. If you want to see this kind of work impact America for the better, please consider supporting the show as a paid subscriber. You can do that online at nightlightshow.com. So until we meet again in mid-October, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you as always for making time for me and please keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.